politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots and Minutemen standing at the ready to fight anew for our life, our liberty, and our property here at the one and only CR Podcast. Daniel Horowitz, your host, back here today, Tuesday, November 15th. And believe it or not, that is the anniversary of the Continental Congress adopting the Articles of Confederation. And perhaps it's time to revert back to that arrangement, that loose federation, kind of one country, but the state is really all that mattered back then, the colony. That's really where we need to head. But we're not going to be able to head there until we have a new movement and possibly a new party to do that. Because the people that we have leading our conservative movement, they still don't get it. It's great, as we've been noting the last couple days, that there's been this introspection, this pain. Oh, man, what are we going through? This is terrible. Republicans lost in the best environment. But their point of inquiry into the election loss is still too narrow, and it's really misfocused. They're focusing on the wrong things. Like, for example... It's all about how to win the next presidential election, who to run, who to run for the next presidential election. Of course, um, Mr. Attention Seeker is going to make it about himself tonight, and he's going to run for president because that's all, all that matters. But partly what we're going to talk about today, we're going to have coming up later on, we are going to focus on the next election. But it's not what you think. Believe it or not, there are three ruby red states We're talking about like Trump plus 20 plus 30 states that are up for governor next year. But the primaries like in Kentucky are already in May 2023, half a year away. And where is the effort to say, wait a minute, we have one DeSantis and now Carrie Lake lost. We're not getting any more. Hey, what if within a year we could have four? What if we could take all those super majorities we talked about Uh, yesterday, and have 20 to 25 amazing states. But no, there's no focus on that. Because the problem is much more fundamental than an electoral map, a landscape of where we can beat the Democrats, where we can't, where there's too many swing voters that are pro-abortion or too much ballot stuffing, too much ballot harvesting. These are things that, you know, need to be explored, but they miss the main point that we keep mentioning. The problem with the Republican Party is the Republican Party. So we're going to delve into that and more today. First, our sponsor, America's only Christian conservative wireless provider. You know, People can't understand why anyone would vote for more crime, more inflation, more open borders. Well, it's the same thing. Why would you keep funding those who hate you and funding those who spy on you like T-Mobile and Verizon? Okay, Patriot Mobile, you switch your service, which is very easy to do. Give them 60 days to show you why I trust them. They have a new deal out that when you try Patriot Mobile for two months, you get the third month free plus free activation. Again, they offer the same nationwide coverage as the major providers, except here's the difference. Number one, you have a U.S.-based customer service uh, team with actually English speakers rather than from India. Number two, 
they actually fight for <clears throat> traditional marriage, life, religious liberty, your values that, by the way, the Republicans are screwing us in marriage. Um, so go to patriotmobile.com slash CR or call their 100% U.S.-based customer service team at 972-PATRIOT. If you're fed up with the woke companies that don't care about your values and subvert your values, stop supporting them. Make the switch today and get a free month of service plus free activation to boot by going to patriotmobile.com slash CR. That's patriotmobile.com slash CR or call 972-PATRIOT. So I, I want to start off with a quote from Ted Cruz. You know, yesterday I beat up a little bit on Josh Hawley, and today I'm going to beat up a little bit on Ted Cruz. And and I'm doing this for a very simple reason. I'm doing this because those are among the two best senators we have, okay? But they still don't quite get it. And... You know, I'd play it, but but uh, I don't want to. It was on his uh, podcast, Ted Cruz's podcast, so I don't know if I have the rights to it. So I'm just going to read a transcript of it. I am so pissed off, I cannot even see straight. The rage that I am feeling, there are almost no words to describe it. It is hard to describe my feelings as anything other than rage right now. Now, Ted Cruz is not describing his feeling for them locking us down and masking children. Day after day, month after month, illegal, illogical, immoral, inhumane policies that the Republican governor in Texas was continuing to support month after month. That doctors that were treating patients who everyone else was leaving for dead had their medical license jeopardized in the state of Texas, red states going along with that. I didn't hear that rage. I didn't hear the rage. I still don't hear the rage as they are killing and maiming millions from these mRNA shots and causing so many infertility issues and reproductive issues, literally the biggest pro-life issue of our time. I don't hear the outrage that we literally funded, funded the Democrat money laundering operation, the bio... uh, biochemical labs, biowarfare labs that unleash these very type of viruses in Ukraine. How he funded this stupid embargo against Russia for no reason and led to all this inflation and supply chain shortage. Oh, whoops. Ted Cruz actually supported that more passionately than Joe Biden did. And again, as you well know, I was a strong supporter of his for president. But as you all know also, I don't have idols. Where was that outrage about any issue that mattered as the GOP almost, sometimes almost unanimously, screwed us? The seething rage is they didn't win an election. But that's exemplified, or that's more symbolic of the fact that they screw us in every issue. I understand it's it's maddening that You know, the one job of the Republican National Committee of Party Machinery is to focus on the nuts and bolts of of campaigns and ground game, and they're just outmatched everywhere. And this has nothing to do with the quality of the candidate. This is true across the board, and everyone should agree to that. I understand that. But the reason they don't do that is the same reason they screw us on the policy issues. See, what's the point in electing Republicans, even if there is no Democrat ballot harvesting, and even if Republicans are amazingly skilled at winning elections, 
if you don't get anything with it. And in fact, you get negative because Republicans help Democrats with giving them a veneer of bipartisan support for their worst things. And that's what I want to lead into today with the biggest news of the day. The biggest news of the day in most conservative talk is still Arizona, the elections, the elections, the elections. But the elections, that, that, that's too much of a myopic focus for your autopsy. You know the culprit for it is the other news of the day. That Chuck Schumer forged a bipartisan agreement to codify gay marriage. To make that a fundamental right. And force red states to have like a full faith and credit reciprocity to recognize any form of marriage. So if they have a dog and a cat and uh, two men, two women in Massachusetts, so then Texas and Florida will have to recognize that. That's the bill that they're ready to pass. And everyone's kind of crying, oh my gosh, we could have gotten 53 seats, we could have gotten 54 seats. Okay, but as I noted, for the most part, that window between 41 and 60 seats doesn't matter because you know either way, the majority party doesn't have enough to get through a filibuster and the minority party doesn't either, but does have the ability to, to block. So Republicans right now have 50 seats. You need to peel off 10, 10 Republicans. That's one-fifth of the conference in order to get such an earth-shattering, fundamental leftist issue passed. And yet, by all accounts, they're going to blow through 60. They might get 15, 20, who knows how many Republicans, but it's worse than that because the majority leader, the majority whip, it's John Thune, and all of leadership, they support it too. Some might you know, vote no, but privately hope yes. Aside from a handful that maybe passionately oppose it, very few, they're all either okay with it, don't care, or downright support it. That's This is what we saw with COVID. This is what we saw with Ukraine. This is what we saw with the homosexual agenda the last 20 years. This is what we saw with criminal justice. This is what we saw and see to this day with immigration, pushing more visas, more visa pork for China and India and even illegal immigration, and told Biden, you know, half the Republicans supported that as well. That's the problem. You can't even begin to engage in an inquiry of, hey, you know, what is it? You know, how do you beat Democrats? I'm not saying there aren't challenges with the Democrats, even if we had a good party. But you can't even begin to imagine before you actually get a a, a, a team. Like, imagine if you have, like, you know, you're playing, uh, I don't know, one of the top teams in the NFL. And you have a team that, rather than making the plays, they're subversive. They purposely fumble the ball. They purposely throw interceptions. They purposely run the other way and put the ball in the other end zone. Well, I can't be like, oh my gosh, man, the Democrat defensive lineman, like that's like a, a juggernaut. Well, it might be, it might not be, but I can't even begin to game that out until you get a normal team on the field. That, that's the bigger issue here. That's what we're missing. So I, I want to get into a little bit the importance of this marriage issue and what it actually means before we get to our guest and discuss red state governors and how to make red states red again. And it ties back into this issue. First, our sponsor today, Moinkbox. Okay, here's another action item. You know, we can't really vote on politics because we have a duopoly. But when it comes to what you put in your body... 
finding healthy protein unvarnished with antibiotics, with additives, with pro-inflammatory chemicals, and by the way, owned by China, 60% of U.S. pork production, you have a choice to keep American farming going by signing up at moinkbox.com slash conservative right now. Listeners get free filet mignon for a year by signing up for their monthly boxes. What's in those monthly boxes? You could choose the meat delivered in every box from ribeyes and chicken breasts to pork chops, salmon fillets. You could cancel any time. So it's not a full year commitment. It is it is crazy not to try this out. Best tasting, grass-fed and grass-finished beef and lamb, pastured pork and chicken, and sustainable wild-caught Alaskan salmon straight to your door every month. This is the type of parallel economy we need to keep. And look, I mean, you know, I'm dealing with this now with, with a family member. I mean, the cancers are exploding and everything, and you really wonder where that's coming from. I'm, and I'm talking about even before the shots, uh, which certainly are turbocharging certain cancers. But, you know, this is the problem. I mean, they're trying to get rid of protein, but even the protein we do have, it's it's really contaminated. Moinkbox is not one year of the best filet mignon you'll ever taste for a limited time by signing up for their assorted boxes of meat and chicken and fish at moinkbox.com slash conservative. Get oinked with moink at M-O-I-N-K box.com slash conservative. Moinkbox.com slash conservative. So I want, I want to talk about this marriage issue. A lot of people will be like, oh, I don't care. I don't care. Uh, they, they won on that already. Yeah, they won on that already. Folks, there is a hundred times more of a reason to fight this than even when we did 15 to 25 years ago when we were more of a religious, culturally conservative country. Because this is not even about Judeo-Christian values, biblical values, morals, sin, God forbid, or I'm sorry, Allah forbid, should we ever stand for something like that. No, 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 no. That's not what conservatives mean. We're all for LGBT conservatism and like uh, uh, a gay Republican. Uh, you know, I, I never got that memo, but evidently that's where we are. But purely from a secular, I'm going to give you just a logical secular argument. Let me try to explain the argument for them that you could have that or that was given put forward when this started the last generation. Marriage was doing fine and well, relatively. Most people were getting, still getting married. We we're procreating. Um, we, we didn't, there was no transgenderism at all on the horizon. And their point was, look, it's a marginalized population. It's just a few people. Let's be nice. Let's be accepting. Equal rights, whatever that even means. Again, it's you know, equal rights doesn't dictate to redefining marriage to something that it clearly is not, but whatevs. Okay, that was kind of their thing. You know, it's about love, who cares, two people love each other. That was the argument. But something happened since we agreed to it. I mean, I didn't, and a lot of you didn't, but most Republicans let it go and actually agreed to it. Gallup has a poll out, and there's ast astounding data here. They ask people, what percentage of you identify as the ever-growing alphabet soup? One of the letters. And shockingly, it has doubled in nine years from 3.5% to 7.1%. Doubled in nine years. 
But what's crazier is in one year of their survey, meaning from 2020 to 2021 data, one year, look at the velocity of this. It went from 5.6 to 7.1. Folks, that's a 27% increase in the proportion of the population that identifies as that thing. But it's worse than that. Because again, you got to look at the trajectory. Gallup breaks it down by generation. Traditionalists, meaning born before 1946, boomers, Gen X, millennials, Gen Z. And you look at this. Again, a lot of people, the more they push the agenda, the more, the more it, you know, people came out and started acting like that, the more I think even a lot of religious people are like, wow, I guess, Daniel, times have changed. It's not their fault. They're born that way, just like borning right-handed, left-handed, blue-eyed, green-eyed, brown hair, blonde hair. It, that's not their fault. They have the right to love. Okay, that's what we were told. See, you can't like criminalize. I mean, we're, no one's criminalizing it, but like, like look down upon or view as sin, something that they, they just can't help. I mean, I mean, this is just how they're born. I mean, the way you are attracted to your gorgeous wife, I mean, they just look at, at Michael Moore, and let me tell you, they can't control themselves. That is 100% natural. Okay, let's look at the Gallup data. Traditionalists. How many identify as one of the alphabet soup stuff? 0.8%, so less than 1%. Baby boomers, 2.6. Gen X, 4.2. So it's going up, but, you know, small numbers. Millennials, 10.5. More than double Gen X. And then Gen Z, 20.8. Double even millennials. They define that as born between 1997 and 2003. And if you look at the velocity of that, well, what about those, I mean, I don't know what's after Gen Z, but kids now that are coming of puberty, 12 to 15, you know, what's with them? Look at that trajectory. Do you understand how, folks, again, this is not a religious issue anymore. You could be the most pro-homosexual guy, like, no sin, God doesn't exist, the Bible doesn't exist, it's the greatest thing since sliced bread. But if you take both those who identify and then they have the no response or unsure. For Gen Z, Gallup has only 75.7% identify as what they call straight or heterosexual. That me- do, you, do you understand how what that means for population? That you are now going to take a quarter a quarter of the population out of marriage, out of reproduction. Well, Daniel, no, they can get married. That's why we want licenses. No, no, no. But out of reproduction, right? You can't deny they can't have a kid. Oh, they'll adopt. Okay, but where do those kids come from? They don't make them, right? Just, Just from a civilization standpoint, I don't care if you are the most, like, secular guy, the most licentious guy, the most anti-social values guy, the most immoral guy, from a public policy standpoint, from a civilization standpoint, what does that mean? 
that you're on to already a quarter and the trajectory is racing. That is totally natural. So now a quarter of kids born. Imagine if suddenly, like out of nowhere, um, 50% of kids born were left-handed. Right? That, that, that's what it would be like saying. Like, what, huh? How did that happen? Well, the answer is it didn't happen. That's the grooming. And it's not just the tranny stuff. You know, Republicans, some of them are trying to, oh, I oppose that. But the homosexual stuff is amazing. That's also part of the grooming. When you have now a society, it's not just even accepting or this. They, they literally raise kids from even the parents and certainly the schools and every facet of politics and law and policy and culture that it's literally, hey, boy, you're five, six, seven years old. Do you know you could either marry a man or a woman? It's a 50-50 proposition. You take an entire generation and confuse them that way. What do you think is going to happen? And you tether it with all the mental illness. It's not a coincidence that Gen Z, like like it's up to like 45% are mentally ill. Um, even the military in their reports say that, that that half of them are unfit for military service. And that's part of their whole recruitment problem. It's linked together. That's not natural. You don't need to be a Bible-thumping Christian or a biblical Jew like myself to appreciate this argument. Is that Are you okay with that? That, that? that is okay. But that's what you do when at a time like this, you, you sit and you promote it even more. What do you think they're doing with this bill? It's not a matter of, oh, just give them their license. Well, they have it already. Obergefell, in fact, goes even farther. Obergefell forces red states themselves internally to their own residents to, to give it, much less uh, you know, have reciprocity for people moving from, uh, from a liberal state, right? That's already there. So what are they trying to do? And the answer is, this is not even, the issue of gay marriage and the homosexual agenda and all the other alphabet soup, transgender stuff, it's not even about morality and and uh, you know licentiousness, social values. I mean, we've blown through that a long time ago. It's about transhumanism and depopulation. In other words, you might not see the connection directly, but it is. It's coming from the same place and headed to the same destination as the artificial intelligence, the transhumanism, the mRNA, the COVID fascism, the biomedical security state, they want to turn an entire generation of people into mindless, androgynous things that you don't have any distinction. You don't have a distinction of sexuality. You don't have a distinction of critical thinking, of independence, of privacy, so that they can fully control you. They want to deracinate all familiar um structure like this is where they went off the rails i mean again i didn't support any of this but i'm just saying even if you bought into some of this but republicans didn't put the brakes on it they were fine with gay adoption how is that okay how is that okay again there's one thing if a handful of people here and there but you're okay with making this a 50 50 proposition how bad does this have to get for republicans to finally Stand up to this and say enough is enough. 40%, 50%, a majority of people identifying 
as a group of people that will never establish a healthy marriage that could literally just reproduce population. Because think about it. This is what you're doing. When you have a generation, when you say right now, 20.8% of that generation, we're already on to the next one now, identifies as one of those things. For the most part, that is going to take them out of the business of reproduction. Now, I'm not saying this is the only problem with marriage and reproduction. You know, even heterosexual, they're not getting married anymore and whatever. But this certainly is a death knell. You confuse people to that degree. Okay? And don't tell me it's an identity or it's an immutable identity. It's a behavior. (laughs) Clearly, clearly influenced from the environment. Again, all sorts of people could be born with all sorts of personality traits and proclivities. But the notion that these are immutable traits, that debate is over, fellows. Okay? You know, they did a good job of making it so common that people got used to it. Like, I guess this is natural. This is how it is. But now it's so off the rails that there's no way that's natural. Anyone could see that. This is utterly insane. And by the way, I mean, this is confirmed in the exit polling. I saw that it was something like 7% identified as one of the things. So if it's 7%, I mean, of of the entire population, you better believe Gen Z, it it makes sense it would be at least 20% if you you would weight it towards the percentages. And that's going to grow. This is one of the, this is not taxes or guns or whatever. You can't recover from this. This is an earth-shattering issue that's like a footnote for conservatives. You know, a lot of the rhinos, all the rhinos are voting for it. The establishment wants it. They're like, let's get this off the, the table. And even most of the conservatives will vote. No, they're not really bothered by it. Like, yeah, we're kind of beyond that. Now, I understand mechanically, unfortunately, if you believe in judicial supremacism, Obergefell kind of sealed that, although theoretically you could overturn it. And maybe in some ways this might actually make it easier for us to challenge it in court because it it creates a new momentum. Although I really don't have faith in these justices, even though based on getting rid of substantive due process and having the standard of deeply rooted in history and tradition should easily get rid of Obergefell even more so than, than Roe in the Dobbs opinion. But, you know, since when were they consistent? It's all about political outcomes, not about jurisprudence and constitutional uh, consistency. But the point is, it's not about mechanically what happens. It's about reinforcing in the body politic and the culture that this is totally on equal playing field. That was the thing. Even the first generation of people pushing the homosexual agenda and even the concept of a same-sex marriage was never understood that it would be an equal proposition. You can't. You can't. I mean, again, it can never be an equal proposition because you could be as gay as you want or act as gay or sodomize all you want, but the point is everyone agreed that, well, someone's got to, you know, reproduce. Someone's got to get the next generation. Heck, someone needs the next generation of homosexuals. You're not going to have anything without that. I mean, this is just a basic argument. I don't understand how anyone looking at this, it's not just the transgenderism, it's all of it.
all of it is part of transhumanism. And yet every fundamental issue, the Republicans are on the other side. Let me give you another example. Let's move on to another issue. Steve Dace uh, found this. He put it out on Twitter. Nikki Haley is holding this like lecture or something. November 14th, 7 p.m. Eastern. $18 including a copy of her book and $10 for the event only. So if you want to attend, this is a great, great, I'm sure it's going to be very exciting. Ask a woman. Ask a woman. Let leadership lessons warn from, from, learned from Ambassador Nikki Haley. Too brown, too female, too conservative. So right off the bat, it's disgusting how she plays this conservative, and that word is bastardized, um, but this conservative uh, uh, just, just identity politics. For decades, Nikki Haley heard all the reasons why the daughter of a Sikh immigrants raised in, in, in uh, Bamberg, South Carolina, could not. She, she did anyway, ousting the longest-serving legislator in the South Carolina State House to serve there, yada, yada. Oh, whatever. So this is going to be all about her, her uh, just disgusting shilling for identity politics. But then at the bottom, it says in-person and virtual event. COVID-19 policy. Proof of COVID-19 vaccination along with valid photo ID required for entry. Masks are no longer required but are available to those who request. So, folks, this is, you know, touted as a Republican presidential candidate to this day, two and a half, almost three years later, still promoting masks and vaccine passports, the transhumanism. What? I mean... (laughs) Now, you might say, you might laugh, oh, that's Nikki Haley. Everyone laughs at her. But not really. I mean, maybe for a presidential candidate, the base is now focused enough on the presidential elections that we're no longer going to, you know, look for someone like a Mike Pence and Nikki Haley. And that's why it's only going to be maybe between a Trump or a DeSantis type of person, whatever. But I have news for you folks. When you go down to Senate, House, governor, state legislature, county position. Nikki Haley fits well within the median of what Republicans believe in. Well within it. She's not like, you know, Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski. She is what a typical Republican is. The minority are the ones that aren't. And that's where I want to get to our next guest. We're focusing only on presidential, only on this issue, only on electoral politics. We're not focused on the top 10 issues that matter to civilization, but in the way it most matters, which is the red states and, 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 and the elected office that matters most, which is governor. So I promise you guys that in the coming days, I'd give you a little bit of a tour of the country going through these deep red states that, you know, for example, vote 20, 30 point margins for Trump that have super majorities in the legislature. You don't have to worry about uh, losing because of abortion. You don't have to worry about losing because of ballot stuffing. You know, for the most part, you don't have to worry about quality of the candidates, really. The D's aren't the issue. It's all R's, so there's no excuse. And yet still, the Republicans are screwing us in all those states 
allowing all of the bad policies on education, on healthcare, on size and scope of government, on the surveillance state, on values, you name it, you name it, grooming in the schools, it all continues. And how the most important thing is to focus on, you guessed it, governor. Well, everyone's talking about Florida, but you know what no one's talking about? Now with Carrie Lake looking, appearing to have lost, however she did or didn't lose, the reality is we now have a grand total of one conservative government governor, and I will stand behind that statement, by the way. If, if you email me, and you could, Daniel Horowitz at starmail.com, oh, no, 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 I have a, I have a conservative government, governor, I'll show you why he's not. I will admit I don't know much about the Montana governor, and he might be maybe a second place, maybe halfway, like doing something. Aside from that, I could I could guarantee you they are literally World Economic Forum transhumanist AI bots. <laughs> okay, that's what they are. They're a bunch of technocrats at best and uh, you know, just in the pocket of big business, in the pocket of big business. That is the biggest thing. So it's not like, oh my gosh, how do we win a presidential election? Daniel, you got to run the table with Wisconsin and Georgia and Arizona and maybe Nevada has to be thrown in there too. Man, with all this stuff, that's very hard. Okay, you know, it's something we need to think about. But I have a better question. What about the 20 to 25 states that you could easily run the table on the Democrats? How come we have governors that are still promoting the clot shots to this day have no problem with masks? Okay, what are we going to do about that? So believe it or not, even though I promised I'm not going to focus on the next election because I think it's stupid, but the next election is something different than you think. There are three elections coming up, primary elections for governor that hold governorship elections or gubernatorial elections in 2023, Kentucky, Louisiana, and Mississippi, three states that we should have Ron DeSantis as governor. Now I'll get to the other two states um, Mississippi is a Republican running for re-election. Um, Louisiana is an open seat that had a Democrat until recently. Almost certainly will have a Republican. Uh, you know, um, Landry is running. Uh, we've had him on the show, the AG. I like him a lot. I have to see what the field is. I know Senator Kennedy is running. A lot of people like him. I do not personally. Um, he was the one who led support for that Kigali Amendment, the global warming amendment that's going to destroy our air conditionings and uh, refrigerations. So I'm not a big fan of him. Uh, you know, behind all that folksiness is not really a conservative. So certainly not someone who's going to stand up to big business. There's a lot of problems with his voting record, but we'll 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 get to that. But today I want to talk about Kentucky. Kentucky is one of the most red-trending states. They actually picked up seats in the legislature. They now have 31-7 to 7 majority in the Senate and 80-20 to 20 in the House. Everyone's like, oh my gosh, we didn't get our 53-47 Republican Senate. Okay, well, let me give you an 80-20. 80-20. But what are they doing with it? What have they done with it? Today we're going to kill two birds with one stone. We're going to have on with us today on the line is Savannah Maddox. She is the most conservative member of the Kentucky House. She's from Grant County, Kentucky, uh, northern Kentucky. That's Thomas Massey country. And she's also running for governor next year, but that is coming up in just a couple months. So this is the next most important race that, of course, I'm the only one talking about it. You have to get everyone buzzing about this. With no further ado, Savannah, thanks so much for joining us for the first time here at Blaze Media. 
Yes, thank you, Daniel. It's a privilege to be on. Okay, so I need you to explain something before you talk about your governor's run, or in fact, I think this kind of sums up your governor's run. Could you explain to me, okay, so I'm in Kentucky. You have a Democrat governor. Now, that might sound bad, but in fact, as I've noted before, it's actually even better for conservatives because conservatives tend to govern better when they're kind of like the anti and they don't have a rhino Republican as governor and they're too tepid about fighting him in the legislature. We have that problem in a lot of states. You have a leftist Democrat. This guy shuts down the state. A lot of people remembered he was surveilling, taking pictures of license plates at church parking lots. Okay, so I know you picked up some extra seats now, but until now you had four to one, three to one majorities in the House, and yet you only need a simple majority in Kentucky to override his veto. How in the world was COVID fascism able to persist for two years and to a certain extent to this day in the state of Kentucky? I marveled at the time that we had such a supermajority in the legislature, yet I was the only one who was willing to stand up and speak out about the egregious executive overreach that we witnessed under Andy Bashir and, you know, the blatant violation of our constitutional rights. And so whenever I began to hear talk of now having 80 seats in the state house and 31 in the state Senate versus where we were already having a supermajority, it's, it's kind of difficult to hear because what I'm thinking is how many more seats do we need before <laughs> we start acting like conservatives, like authentic Republicans? And even beyond the failures that transpired by letting Andy Bashir get away with what he did, I mean, on other issues as well, how many more will it take before we pass any type of legislation that will protect children from gender mutilation before we take a step forward in protecting our Second Amendment rights. How many more Republicans do we need before we act like Republicans? So you had a bill um, dealing with the mutilation uh, before you know it became popular among conservative talk radio hosts, and you know we're focusing on it. Obviously, just south of you, uh, uh, Matt Walsh is doing great work in, in Tennessee. But you you had a bill in 2019, uh, you know, a couple years ago. Um, what happened to that bill? Yes, I, I drafted that bill back in 2019 and I filed it for several years, but it has yet to move or even to receive a committee hearing in so much as the Kentucky Chamber of Commerce has been very opposed to it. And, you know, frankly, the members, rank and file and leadership both, are afraid of taking any action on that issue. We did ultimately pass a Save Women's Sports bill last session, which was considered to be a step in the right direction. But I'm not going to rest, whether it's in the legislature or as Kentucky's next governor, on making sure that we protect children from any type of experimental treatment or um, gender reassignment surgery or things of these nature. So just so listeners know, I've been ticked off at Massey for a while, and I've been ribbing him about wasting his life away from his beautiful farm in the god-awful place, D.C. Like, why don't you run for governor? Well, he said, like, you know, look, cut me some slack. I got I got someone better. And that's where I was introduced to you. And, and again, you were just basically a one-woman show in, in the legislature, standing up to uh, medical tyranny, COVID fascism, and all your bills that should have easily, easily been passed, um, override the governor's veto. So I think you made the right decision by saying, look, you know, rather than just kind of trying to get a few more conservatives here and there in the legislature, I think what we've all learned from experience is you can't do it without a governor. You can't 
it you know my friends in Texas have been trying to fix that legislature for a long time but without a governor like DeSantis cuz Florida legislature was like that too and it kind of still is um you you need you need you need the bully pulpit so i think you made the right decision so um the question everyone's going to automatically ask is all right you know people like you run all the time you have no money no clout because you don't kiss up to the big industries how are you going to defeat the establishment Absolutely. And that's a good question. But as far as fundraising, you know, I'm in the top five. I've, I've actually trans, um, I've actually exceeded others. But that said, I think that the way that we win is with the message. And so much as I was the only person who was speaking out against our current governor's overreach. But even beyond that, I have the most conservative voting record in the entire Kentucky General Assembly. I've been endorsed by Congressman Thomas Massey, who, as you alluded to, has a track record of standing up. He is the most genuine article, the most authentic, principled elected official that I know. Uh, I think that that carries a lot of weight in the 4th Congressional District, but also throughout the state. I've also been endorsed by the National Association for Gun Rights. But these other candidates, they hid their head in the sand and they waited until it became politically expedient to speak out against (laughs) the governor, which in many instances took eight to 10 months after the damage was already done. But I believe that we need men and women of courage and conviction all across this nation to stand up and to lead from the front, because the fight truly is at the state level. As you mentioned, we have to get our nation back on track, and I do believe that we do that at the state level. We're well positioned to fight back against that federal overreach that folks like Congressman Massey and Senator Paul have been fighting back against for years. Yeah, and and, and folks, I know you guys, the last thing you want to hear about our elections, but as you can tell, this is a very different focus, a different type of office that, frankly, we should have focused on. I mean, I wrote an article a year and a half ago. I said, look, there are so many deep red state governorships up, and we we got to get the best guys in. And you never heard about them because, obviously, a general election, they were a non-issue. But there were primaries, and I tried on a few of them. But, you know, we're, we're outgunned, out men. People that should know better need to get involved and focus we 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 cannot waste any time this is may may 2023 this is when it starts savannaforgovernor.com and i ask you guys to donate generously because you know this has all the ingredients usually i tilt at windmills and unfortunately that's all we can do this is not the case so savannah isn't it correct that you have a unique circumstance where a you're a, a sitting legislator from the most Republican congressional districts as the most Republican registered voters, but also you have like four establishment candidates that are splitting the vote and you're the only conservative and you could win with a pretty low threshold. Absolutely. And that's the thing. We have, you know, these other candidates that are running right in the same lane. Correct. They, they are more moderate on the issues. They're more of the go-along to get-along establishment-style Republican. They're going to be vying for the same votes and same resources, whereas I have that proven track record of standing up even when others wouldn't. And I think that now is the time that we have to redefine that appropriate role of government in our lives. I believe that that is what people are looking for, not just in the Commonwealth of Kentucky, but all across the nation. We no longer have the luxury of electing folks who will just go along to get along. We need true leaders who will lead from the front like Ron DeSantis has done in Florida.
So I want to talk about that leading from the front, the governance. I think there's a good pathway to you getting in there, but we need conservatives to get involved and and focus on this, the proper, you know, the people to understand that it's not just, oh, this is the next election. This speaks to what we're failing everywhere else, that this is a, I mean, I think you're a terrific candidate. I think you, you'd be great in a blue state, assuming that you can get through this, uh, you know, ballot harvesting issue, but but in a red state anyway, you know, this should be a freebie, get rid of the Democrats, but what sort of Republican are we going to have? Here's the issue, the challenge I see everywhere. It's not so much right and left. The reason why red states go down is because you take a state like Kentucky, it's a, it's, it's a kind of a poorer state, and the few industries you have wield a lot of power, healthcare, uh, cartel, education cartel, they're always the 800-pound gorilla in any state, the university system, the medical hospital systems, and that's where all this garbage comes from, the medical tyranny, the the grooming, the, the values, the transhumanism, the surveillance, the nanny state, and they, they have a lot of clout. How do you punch through that? And particularly, I'm going to challenge you, Savannah, a little bit, you know, not to take away from from DeSantis's accomplishments, but it was a good state to do it. It's a wealthier state. It's a huge destination. A lot of tourism. A lot of people moving there. Um, Kentucky is a little bit different. How how are you going to thread that needle? To your point, it's I have watched over the course of the last you know few terms that I've served in office at where lobbyists and special interest groups and some of the entities that you've referred to have taken priority over the interests of citizens. However, never once have I yielded to that kind of pressure. And I think that the case to be made to voters is that I am presenting the type of governance that they say that they want, one that mirrors the very vision that our founders intended. And, you know, we need someone who is willing to stand up to that nebulous web of bureaucracy that we see both at the state and federal level, where we have these unelected bureaucrats that are making decisions that later become many laws that impact our lives. We have to be willing to stand up against that. And I think that there is a lot of interest in supporting someone that has a record of doing that and has a plan to move our commonwealth forward. So in in terms of that plan, the other big issue that you have in these kind of smaller red states, you know, they're poorer states than, than like a Texas or a Florida, that they're dependent a lot on the federal government. This has always been the big issue that the feds, you know, we want to engage in interposition against their harmful, immoral, unconstitutional edicts that, you know, Biden's stuff needs to be stopped at the doorstep of a red state. But the problem is all these guys in the legislature and these bureaucracies within these red states, they love that money. How do you break that dependency? I've grown tired of hearing Kentucky and other states be referred to as welfare states or recipient states whenever it was the federal government itself that has positioned us in this way. And whenever you have Congress that is passing, you know, trillions of dollars of spending and, you know, creating inflation and devaluing the very value of the dollar, it's kind of like this vicious circle. But that said, Kentucky has long had workforce participation rates issues. I mean, I think we're 56 percent among able-bodied adults. And to me, the answer to that is to to engage in substantive and sustainable 
systemic reform of our Medicaid and social assistance programs, but we also need to be able to attract industry to our Commonwealth, which is something that we do in two ways. One, through deregulation. We need to make it uh, more attractive for industry to come here to know that they can um, flourish and compete without the undue force of government on their back, but also through tax reform. We need to eliminate Kentucky state income tax. Now, are you concerned that when you start attracting businesses, you get what Texas had where they start dictating social policy? Yeah, and I think that you have to be mindful of that. But at the same time, I think that with regard to social policy, we also have an issue where folks who are perpetually caught up in that cycle of social dependency tend to vote in the interest of electing people who will perpetuate that cycle. So we have to be mindful of that as well in a state like Kentucky. So the other thing is, and I think this is true with both Kentucky and West Virginia, they were always culturally conservative. Um, they were also always very Democrat states before the realignment of the of the parties. And then in the last number of years, they've realigned, kind of culminating with the last few election cycles where the legislatures have swung very much against the Democrats in West Virginia. They almost wiped out every single Democrat in the in the, in the state Senate. But the problem is the unions still have a tremendous amount of power, I'm seeing, maybe waning a little bit, but but still pretty strong. And it was widely believed that Matt Bevin, who was a previous Republican governor before you had Democrat uh, Andy Bashir come in, at, that he you know ran into trouble with some of the unions in trying to reform, reform whether it's healthcare, education. You know, what, what did you learn from that era in terms of navigating that? Yes, I think that the influence or, you know, the negative influence, if you will, on elections that we have experienced in the form of unions has somewhat been attenuated by the passage of right to work. But that said, with regard to the public education union, it is it is very clear to me that parents, uh, their sensibilities have been inflamed by what they have seen with regard to curriculum and, mm. you know, school boards forcing masks and things of that nature. So I mm. think that, you know, along the lines of parents' rights, that, you know, Kentucky's parents should be able to educate their children however they see fit. I think that that's where we're at right now, and those are the types of policies that I have advocated for and will continue to, to advocate for. But, you know, just overall, I think the most important thing that I could say on this topic or in general, whenever, you know, voters are looking at, at whom they're going to support, whether it's a legislative race or gubernatorial, look for that voting record. Whenever anybody can say, you know, I'm 100% pro Second Amendment, because those types of issues do tend to be uh, very mobilizing in Kentucky. I'm 100% pro Second Amendment. What does that mean? Is that something that you say, or do you have a record of having done it? I passed constitutional carry uh, back in 2019. You know, I have that track record, whereas some of these other folks are just going to say it. But, you know, really push them on it. Does that mean that you would support red flag laws or any other type of unconstitutional overreach with regard to our Second Amendment rights? And on the issue of taxation and with government spending, you know, every Republican candidate wants to tell you that they're conservative. But in reality, have they ever supported any type of increase in taxation? Are they really just the same 1997 Democrats who are tax spenders, or do they really want to make good on their word? I think it's important to read between the lines. You know, that that was a really terrific point because I think it reverberates in several other states. 
um, this lock that the public sector unions have had on what we now call very red states. But, you know, traditionally until recently, we're very Democrat. Um, you know, it's no longer just about, OK, bringing back the bacon. It's about the culture war. And that has opened up a huge opportunity you know, the fact the, the I call it mask and groom, <laughs> mask and groom, that's what it is. And that's opened up a huge opportunity to really reform the the public sector education that might have been harder, maybe, you know, during Bevin's time. Um, what about energy? OK, so in terms of interposition, it's very easy when the government says, OK, we're going to have uh, mandates, you know, public health mandates, we're going to. Uh, have Second Amendment stuff, you know, gun control. So you just say, hey, in Kentucky, this ain't happening. A tougher issue, and there might not be an answer to this, and I'm kind of struggling with this, but he's locking up our energy, and and that really is federal regulations. The 800-pound gorilla in the room in, in Kentucky is the war on coal in the eastern part of the state. Um, is there anything you feel you can do as governor to get coal working again in the state? Yeah, Kentucky needs a governor who is willing to stand up and openly articulate the damage that is being wrought on our Commonwealth by a lot of the policies that have been enacted at the federal level, and most often not by the legislature, not by the body that is duly elected for that purpose, but by unelected bureaucrats. Um, not just with regard to energy, although you know it has been significantly decimated, you know, under the Obama administration moving forward, but. That said, even on uh, things like development with 404 mitigation fees, so many of these things that, you know, we, we have not had governors who were willing to stand up and say, this is the cost. And, you know, that that will not uh, be allowed to transpire in, in the Commonwealth of Kentucky. And I, I do understand that it is a little bit more nuanced with regard to energy. But at some point, we're going to have to have a backbone. And I think that we stand a better chance of doing that if we have a coalition of authentic Republican governors. Yes. Who the line. I mean, that that's because while everything else is unconstitutional, this is more like, yeah, it, it kind of does affect interstate commerce. And generally, it's federal in nature. But the problem is, what do you do when you have a government that violates what I call the social compact, that nobody could look at them and say, I think you're making a good faith effort to um, pursue the general welfare, to govern in accordance with that. I'm going to say I'm going to lock up your stuff and make it more expensive and celebrate the scarcity. At some point, the red state governors need to form some sort of alliance and say, hey, we're going to have a way to boost oil, gas, and coal, because we're just not going to freeze to death or suffer because of this. I mean, at some point, it's not a suicide pact, but I agree with you. These are the type of things that you need a few, and uh, you know, two is a lot better than one, and hopefully we get a few more. Final question here. Um, your governor, let's say your governor, and uh, you have a blue city, which you always have in these states. You have Louisville, some other places, Lexington. And they're like, we want to violate fundamental rights or violate natural rights, natural law. Okay, so we're going to push grooming. Um, we're going to push drag shows or we're going to push masking and things like that in the schools or whatever else we cannot even envision that they have coming down the pipeline for the next big current thing. Um, are you the type that's like, look, you know, I like localism. I'm, I'm certainly going to advocate against this governor, but, you know, they can do what they want or like, no, I'm going to go to war with them. 
Daniel, in Kentucky, the concept of local control has been so abused over the past couple of years that I couldn't even begin to relate it appropriately, uh, particularly with regard to curriculum and things that are being taught in our schools and masking and vaccines and, and all of these things. Because, yes, obviously, you know, we believe in local control as conservatives, but at the same time, any opportunity, any any chance that I had in the context of the folks that would be uh, filling the cabinets that I would have in the executive branch, I would do everything in my power to dismantle all of those entities that would yeah. ever seek to violate any of our constitutional rights. I would consider it my duty, my mandate on behalf of the voters if I were elected to do so, and I would not yield to anything beyond that. I mean, I think the lesson from Florida is very clear. The governor really leaned in on the blue localities. So you think, all right, well, he wins the state, but you know, certainly there's going to be maybe a strong vote against him in the blue areas. And instead, he won a lot of them, a lot of the areas he went to war with. Um, and, and that should, I mean, because he didn't go to war with them. He went to war with the public officials there. But the people and the, certainly like the parents in the schools – uh, where they were, you know, in places like Palm Beach County, they're trying to uh, mask the kids. He won Palm Beach County, uh, the first Republican, and who knows how long to do that, if ever. So um, what what other priorities before we, we, you know, sign off here, what other priorities do you think a red state governor needs to pursue? Well, I think what you mentioned there is very key. You know, Governor Ron DeSantis has done a good job of making the case to voters because I have grown weary of this red shirt versus blue shirt dichotomy that voters are continually faced with. I mean, I'm a lifelong Republican. It, it is very important to me. My values are firm. But that said, I want to create economic growth in the Commonwealth of Kentucky virtue of instilling those principles of, and I, I hate to use the term limited government, but really and truly to uh, reduce the overwhelming and overarching influence that government has had in our lives so that private industry can flourish. I think if we can do that and sustain that um, in a way that creates jobs that transcends just this administration, but you know goes on to the, into the future for our children and grandchildren, I think that that will be a very positive direction. But really, I want I'm very invested in uh, building that coalition of governors that will stand up to that federal overreach so that we can redefine the appropriate role of government to reflect that vision that our founders intended. And I think if I get that accomplished, then uh, that would be very significant. Building coalition of government uh, governors. I mean, that really is. Uh, look, there's no silver bullet, but that that certainly is the best thing I could think of at this point. Um, as everyone is anguishing over the loss and mourning over what to do, that's where it's at. And and again, you don't have to cross enemy lines to do that. Um, why do we only have one DeSantis and not at least 20? So hopefully this will be number two. If you go to uh, Savannah for Governor, that's two N's um, in savannahforgovernor.com. You could follow her on Twitter at Savannah L. Maddox two D's in the, in, in the last name on Twitter. Hey, Savannah, wish you best of luck. God bless, and definitely keep us updated as this progresses. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Daniel. It's been a privilege. Take care. So, folks, once again, not to toot my own horn, but this is what distinguishes this show from pretty much every other. I will always be the first in to try to see where we can make a difference and as crazy as it sounds to talk about the next election, which I'm very against, but this is a little different. This is not 2024. This is 2023 in the primary. It's it's in May. And I'll tell you, 
I really, I rarely feel this strongly about a candidate. Her her depth of both principles, but also very specific legislative knowledge, um, is is very deep. Uh, she's the type that you know you you go in the state. All right, who's the one with the best bill on this? Who's the one with the bill on medical freedom? It's always going to be a Savannah. And the other problem we typically have: okay, fine, you have a great candidate, but how are they going to win against the establishment? There's a very unique circumstance here where you have a bunch of well-moneyed establishment guys running. So if, if, if it were just one, it would be a problem, but it's multiples, multiples. They split the vote. There's no runoff. There's grumbling. They wanted to create it, but I think they're pretty sure there's no time or room and desire even to permanently change their state to a runoff state. So that means you could theoretically win with 23% of the vote. Um, and and again, she is from the 4th Congressional District, Massey's District. Keep in mind, while Kentucky is a very red state, but it just recently surpassed – Republicans surpassed Democrats in terms of registration. A lot of these states, western Pennsylvania, West Virginia, parts of Ohio, that whole Appalachia area, still a lot of registered Democrats um, – so her district has an outsized share of the registered Republicans, and I think she has a terrific, terrific chance. But again, I mean, this is where Trump could shine by actually making a good endorsement, and you can't accuse him of endorsing some sort of you know, Yahoo. She's extremely smart, articulate, very issues-focused. Um, you know, This is where it matters, and this is where all the top 30 talk show hosts need to come in and focus on this. Uh, you know, the difference between having one dissent is an even two is a huge, huge difference. We don't have that. We need to build it. We need to talk about Louisiana and Mississippi. I'm not very happy about Tate Reeves. I mean, he's another one of these fake conservatives who's really a you know crony. But, you know, that one's going to be tilting at windmills. I don't really see a path to knocking off a sitting Republican governor running for reelection, especially one like that. But but Kentucky is just a wide open shot. Wide open, um, very good opportunity. I want to jump on that as soon as I can. And this is what we do here. Let me know your comments, questions, concerns about this and other races and other issues. But remember, this is about a lot more than just how do we win a presidential election with this Arizona, Nevada, you know, Rust Belt, Georgia problem. That's that's a problem. But, you know, folks, if we actually had Governors like DeSantis in 2022, 23 red states, this entire discussion would be moot. Okay, I want you to remember that. And that's what we're going to continue focusing on, um, the legislative agenda in these states. And then also, look, later today, by the time you listen to this, we'll find out what happened in the GOP conference with their leadership elections. Obviously, McCarthy will win the nomination, but the importance is how many vote against him, how many vote for Andy Biggs or someone else, and that will really determine the clout we have going into January 3rd. Folks, we have a lot of work to be, to, to do, more than just the distraction over, oh, how do Republicans win elections? How do we as conservatives actually make a difference in the context of a subversive Republican Party? That is the question that needs answered. Till tomorrow, God bless y'all, and thank you for listening. 